Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire women. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome to Sky Women, a podcast for real women, real stories, real inspiration. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, and I am so excited to share with you guys today my sister, Sarah Gonzalez. She is an amazing human being. She's one of my favorite people, but she has a very interesting story um, in her fertility journey. And she is an HR consultant and completed her MBA this last year with three kids, four and under. So she's a superstar in my book. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today and share your story with the Sky community because this is when infertility really hit close to home, right? Whenever you decided to start your family. And it is an emotional, physical, and financial journey. And it really can be all-consuming. And so I want you to share with us kind of your journey and to help other women who may be going through um, similar events. Sure. Well, I'll do my best. Um, And, you know, let me just say that, you know, you being my older sister, um, who, you know, is you're, you're so accomplished and specifically be you being a women's health provider and just always being um, a source of inspiration and encouragement to me. You know, I know that, um, you know, you were a big part of sort of, you know, I came to you, um, you know, to share that, share that journey and to get support and to pick your brain and get free medical advice, I think, (laughs) quite often. I'm sure a lot of your family does, but it was a huge help to me, just, um, you've always been such an incredible sister and, and source of strength for me, so thank you. Oh my goodness, I'm crying. (laughs) And I'm I'm so proud of you as you uh, venture on this journey and start the podcast and starting your own business at Sky Women. So I'm very, very proud of you and happy to be here sharing a bit of my journey today. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, right. So AJ and I have been married 10 years um, and we have now five-year-old twins and a little boy, uh, twin, identical twin girls and a little boy that will be two in a few weeks. And when we got married at the right age of 25 and 26, I think, yeah, yes. that math checks out. Um, so young, but of course, you know, we knew, we knew each other so well. We're best of friends. And we knew, uh, you know, it was our intention to start a family young. Um, and sort of, I think in our mind, our, our master plan was like, we would have our family built and like semi-complete by the time we were 30. That was 
I mean, I'm pretty type A. That I think that really was my, like, that was what I had in my mind, my right. vision, my timeline, as if the timing is that important. But it was important, I guess. So, you know, we, we wanted to sort of enjoy the first year or two, and then when it felt right, we would, you know, start trying or stop preventing, um, right. you know, like getting pregnant. And I, I think I always had an inclination or premonition that, you know, I mean, you, I think we know a lot more about our bodies. Our intuition tells us a lot more than we, <laughs> we necessarily listen to. But I think I had a bit of a knowing that I might have trouble um, getting pregnant just because I always had irregular cycles. Um, but, you know, we started trying, uh, probably in the second year of marriage. Okay. Kind of one of those conversations, like, are we ready? Probably not, but let's, let's get going. Right. Right. And then, you know, so that was exciting. And after, you know, about a year or, or a little bit more of the ups and downs in the you know, getting hopeful every month and then, okay, you know, the letdown of, um, it's just a roller coaster, right? But it, but it, it wasn't so raw because there's, there's all this hope and um, naivety or just ignorance about what might be coming on our journey. Sure. So it was going pretty well. You know, and then it, it started to get a little more difficult. Um, but I think around somewhere around year three, we of trying, um, we we decided to see a fertility specialist, and then we ended up having we got it you know work up and um, you know realized well everything sort of looks normal, but so I guess it was unexplained infertility. Which is the hardest, I think. Like you have no answer. You don't really have a solution. Right. And so you feel broken. You blame yourself. Right. Exactly. Yeah, right. There's no answers. There's no sense of control over it. And, you know, although the labs and the doctors say, well, everything looks normal, like you should be able to get pregnant um, from what we see, but then you sort of start to hate your body, like you don't trust it <laughs> because it's not working for whatever reason. Well, that's hard, you know, um, but we did end up trying an IUI. I think we did two or three IUIs. Um, and obviously that we, you know, we didn't have any positive pregnancy tests that just, it just didn't work. But that, Sorry. Go ahead. In your three years of trying and not getting pregnant, you really struggled with whether or not you were going to move forward and see a reproductive endocrine specialist. Right. Uh, it's a little fuzzy as to when exactly we got a workup. Um, but you know, I think AJ is so, he's so 
at peace and content. Yes. <laughs> that balance, that yin and yang that we provide one another. Yes. And, you know, so I think it was, uh, you know, we, uh, sort of wanting to respect that um, desire to just kind of wait and see and that hope that, okay, it's all going to work out when it needs to, <laughs> which right. is hard for me. Right. But you never had a positive pregnancy test. Never, ever, ever. Never. Okay. So, so you saw the REI, you got the workup, you did three IUIs and yeah, still nothing. Was, right. But that was after, you know, I think actually we tried Clomid, uh, which is like an ovulatory stimulation. Right. Know, so all medication you take and you sort of, uh, you know, you're watching, I think you, you maybe, you know, do some tests, ovulation tests or whatever, you time it just right. And well, I think we had maybe tried that a few months or six months. I can't remember exactly. It's, I have mom brain now. <laughs> Thank God. Of course. Yeah, of right. course. It gets muddy. Right. Sure. Okay. You go to see the REI and you do your workup and you finally are at the point where that our only chance is IVF. Like this is the route yeah. we need to go. So right. I want you to talk a little bit about the process of ovulation induction, of egg retrieval, of having the embryo, you know, like the whole process, because a lot of people maybe aren't in that headspace or maybe they are. And they identify with that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I, that might throw you off a little bit because I'm going to share two things. I don't, I don't know that, you know, Okay. Um, that I don't know that I've shared with you before. Okay. Um, so, so one, uh, around the time that I had, around the time that I'd, come to terms with seeing the REI, going on the, you know, infertility, possibly IVF journey. It was a journey to get there. Um, but I started a blog. <laughs> I actually forgotten about this. And as I was listening to Melissa's, was it Melissa or? Yes. Um, both of them were bloggers. And I was thinking, yeah, I did. I also started an anonymous blog. Um, because I just didn't know, I didn't know, you know, you know, I had you and you are such a great support, but you know, you'd not had, not gone through the infertility piece personally. And I, I didn't have friends that were, you know, trying to start families or had trouble. So I needed that support system. And so I had an anonymous blog and I sort of built a community, like a small community. It wasn't like an everyday thing, but it was as major events happened, I would share and sort of like, you know, tag certain hashtags at the time and, and uh, which brought people who were experiencing the same thing or had the same goal to me. And so that was, that was a really, that was really helpful. Um, I did not know that. So I actually, I had to, it's been so many years, um, certainly after the girls were born, I, you know, had, I had stopped blogging and I kind of reached out to my community and just said, Hey, if you, if anyone wants to find me, here's how you can find me like on Facebook. And so I had shared it briefly 
with them. And then I kind of made most of everything private. So I just, I didn't have time to keep up with it. And I just kind of felt like, okay, I had shared and, you know, I had shared and I connected with them and I just kind of needed to focus. <laughs> On raising all these babies that you now have. <laughs> yeah. But, right. But, but, but the, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to, so the other pieces, I, I, I didn't feel like IVF was for us. Um, one of the reasons is that I had actually, um, so I had actually, I had a close friend um, uh, that had gone through infertility and um you know, when I was very young, like just entering the workforce, I created this friendship with the coworker and seeing he and his wife go through infertility and trying to build a family. And they have a fabulous story, but that's their story to tell. Um, but it made a really big impact on me. And uh, I actually had been an egg donor before. I didn't know that. And it was something that's very, you know, obviously it's very private. Um, it was very private. It was just between like sort of AJ and I, but I'm sharing it with you today and your community. So that was before we had started to um, start our own family. But I knew what the what it entailed. I had done the injection, the ovulatory stimulation, um, the frequent appointments, you know, the blood work, the retrieval, uh, that I just hadn't, you know, gone beyond that. It was a gift that I had um, shared with another family. But I'd seen, you know, what that I, I knew what it felt like to do the injections and go to all the appointments and, you know, all of that. And I just, I guess, I just felt like, okay, if my body's not going to work, then either I'm not meant to be a mom or, you know, and, and, and maybe I need to revisit that <laughs> or perhaps. I'm being led to adopt or foster, and I don't, I don't know that we were coming to terms with what was the right journey for us. But at a certain point, some of the people in my support community um, on the blog, actually, I we had we had gone to a support group for couples and women that had gone through infertility that were struggling with it, that were at various points in their journey. Some even were like, yes, but I've closed that chapter. I've like, I had a, I had a failed IVF or miscarriages or, and I, and I am past, I'm beyond that, but they still continue to come and provide support. But at, at a certain point, someone had provided me, they sent me a book and I wish I remembered what it was. But that was, I, I do remember that when I got to the end of that book, um, it was just this, like, moment of enlightenment where I felt at peace. And, like, I knew what the next step was. And the next step was 
to find the right REI, the first safety clinic and the, the doctor we'd worked with before, we didn't feel comfortable working with. Um, it wasn't the right fit. And we wanted someone, we needed someone who just was a better fit, who would be straight talk, you know, not trying to sell us on something, um, and would just worked with us better, just mm-hmm. clicked with us better, I guess. And so finding, that was, that was the, that was the first step, finding the right person, I think. Yeah. And then you guys went through egg retrieval and you had hyperstimulation. Is that right? Yeah. Well, there were, and there were some other things along the journey, like, well, before we did the IUI, we had to do the HSG, like you, you can explain what that is, but where they test the, they do an x-ray of your fallopian tubes to make sure they're open but before we could do IVF, we had to do the um, polypectomy. Endometrial polyp. So you had a polypectomy. So you had a, a hysteroscopic procedure. So they put a camera inside your uterus and they identify the polyps and they resect them. Correct. And you're under yes. sedation. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's all part of your workup as they're still trying to differentiate. Is there something that's causing it? So they're thinking, oh, there's a structural problem here. We'll remove these polyps and you'll have well, well when we when we find when we finally found an an REI that we felt, okay, this is this is the guy we want to work with. Um, we felt totally at ease. We were on the same page. As we were preparing to start IVS, that was just it's just uh, sort of like a pre- prerequisite for the cycle is they would, you know, do the scan of the, of the uterus and they just found that. And it was like, okay, well, we have to, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, stimulate your ovaries, transfer embryos to your uterus, knowing that there are polyps. So let's put this on hold, take care of that first, and then we come back. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So a couple of setbacks along the journey. And then tell me about when you actually realized you guys were pregnant. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, so we, and we, we'd done the, we'd done the IVF cycle. We had bukus of eggs <laughs> or embryos, eggs and embryos. Um, everything, you know, went very, very well. Um, when we, we had to wait a few months because I was overstimulated. Um, so just another setback along the way, but when we finally were able to do our transfer, um, fun fact, um, my, our mother is an identical twin and she called me and she said, you know, Sarah, I was thinking, right, if you're going to do an embryo transfer, I know a lot of times they transfer two at a time. I just really think you should try just one at a time. Just what if, right? What if? Right, you know, they say that it skips a generation, and what if you had twins? And I said, Yeah, you know, I mean, I doubt that would happen, but I was also kind of thinking, Let's be more conservative. So, we had made the intentional decision to only transfer one embryo. And our doctor was very, he's like, I think you're a very good candidate for that. Well, skip forward a little bit to our first beta, and they say, uh, The nurse is like, Just 
want you to be mentally prepared for the possibility that it's twins. Your beta is very high um, and consistent with what we see um, with twins. So sure enough, our first sonogram, I think we're six weeks along and um, they, they said, <laughs> of course it wasn't the nurse or doctor that had done the procedure, but the sonogram text says, how many embryos did we transfer? And I said, well, it better have been one. And she says, well, there are definitely two babies here. So there's baby A and there's baby B. So exciting. And how did you guys feel in that moment? Elated. I mean, <laughs> totally shocked. I mean, maybe there was, we had sort of had a inclination that that could be the case because they said, you know, the numbers look, but never in a million years will we think, yeah, sure. You know, there's a 2% chance of having um, identical twins. That's probably going to happen to us, right? right. I don't think we really believe that. So I was definitely very, very shocked. But after, you know, we were four and a half, almost five years into our, our journey trying to conceive um, at that point. So it was just total elation. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember you being so bold about sharing your pregnancy even early on, which I owe you an apology because <laughs> uh, it's sad that it's perpetuated in society, you know, that it's taboo. We don't talk about miscarriages. Well, guess what? A large number of women are having miscarriages and they're suffering alone. They're suffering in quiet. They're suffering and not telling anyone and not processing those emotions. And, you know, I remember that kind of being the culture, even training in residency. And now, you know, out in practice and having my own miscarriage, I just feel like that is the most ridiculous thing. Like, why would we make taboo something that is so common um, and that leaves families very sad, very heartbroken. You know, some women have recurrent pregnancy loss. And so I think that it's great that I'm seeing more and more on social media, women um, talking about their, their losses, no matter how far along, you know, like recently Christy Teigen, who shared in her second trimester loss. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and, and um, I've known many people who have gone through uh, miscarriages early and late, you know, late term miscarriages and um, even, you know, both AJ and, and our mother had, had gone through that and had a pregnancy loss. Um, and so, you know, I have a great deal of empathy. I, I personally never, never went through that. Um, so even though my journey was long, right, I, I feel uh, I feel lucky, I guess. I don't know, maybe that's the wrong wrong term. I, I certainly don't mean to be insensitive, but I I do feel a sense of relief that although we never we had so many years of uh, months and <laughs> after months of not having any sort of sign or not knowing and not having any positive you just want to see that little positive on that stick right sure um but you know we we didn't have to go through the you know the disappointment and the the grief of losing losing a child so sure. um 
Yeah, but I tell, I always say that we hit the IVF lotto. <laughs> because, because, and we had, and we were in the right hands. Right. In fact, the, um, the, um, she's a nurse, but the individual that I'd worked with, um, through the egg donations that I had done, um, we just clicked and she's kept in touch with me, um, for all these years. So when I reached that point, I, I thought of her, I reached out to her, I called her and I said, here's where I'm at. And, you know, she, she had built her business in the geographic, the area we were in. And so I said, surely you, you know, like, who do you think would be the right person to work with? That's actually how we got our referral and found our person. Um, to to donate, I want to, I want to clarify, are we talking about for egg donation or for your REI? For the REI. Yeah. Okay. So whenever you guys decided you want to start your family, this isn't working. I need to go through REI. Yeah. When you had done that first egg donation, that's who you reached out to, to that's, get a recommendation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's reached okay. Out to him and he helped us find the, you know, that was after the IUI when we were ready to do the IVF. Okay. Like, All right. Guy to talk to you. So. Okay. So you go through, um, your twin pregnancy and of course you reach the point of misery. You have a scheduled C-section at 35 weeks and a NICU stay. Uh, yes. A two and a half day NICU stay. We were, um, very blessed with big babies that <laughs> just needed a little bit of help sort of regulating breathing and, um, you know, oxygen and uh, all of that. They were uh, doing a little bit, just needed a little bit of time to stabilize. They were six pounds and six pounds, one in one ounce or six pounds, one, six pounds, two. <laughs> Chunky um, babies at 35 weeks. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very okay. much so. So in the hospital, like what was the hardest thing with your recovery and the NICU stay? Was it your headspace? Was it physical? Was it the, the fact that the babies were at a distance in the NICU? Um, I think it was all of that combined with being a first time mom, having recovering from surgery uh, for the very first time. Um, and I would add like, like a lack of mental clarity, you know, I was on, you know, IV pain medications to recover from surgery. And so, you know, all of that combined, I think was very hard. It was hard for me to understand what was going on with the girls, um, and why they were, why they were still in the NICU and it was just. I guess a lag in communication because I wasn't in the NICU constantly and constantly being monitored, you know, in the room. Um, and then I think by day two, I just realized, okay, I'm just going to go post up in the NICU and then they can't, they, they can't find me every two hours. Like I can just, I'm just going to hide out in here. They did find me though. Um, so I think once I kind of sort of came to and was up and walking, that was when I just, you know, 
decided to spend most of my time in the NICU with them. Right. Okay. So you get these babies home and you are nursing, you're kind of figuring out your groove. AJ's going to assume the role as primary parent and you are trying to feed these babies and work. <laughs> and I'm sure you had a love-hate relationship with your pump as I have many times in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I tried everything to nurse. Um, works with lactation, the girls had up in tongue tie, we did, um, we got that corrected, uh, you know, they do a little in-office procedure to correct that, speech path, that, like, we tried everything, um, and we nursed on and off at first, but it was, it was crazy. I, I pumped for 10 months, and yeah, those, those early days, though, were just, I remember at one point I was like rocking in bed, like holding the pillow. And I thought that I thought at one point I like dropped the baby as like mildly hallucinating <laughs> because it was, it was like you would feed one baby, then turn around, feed the other baby and then pop because they needed supplementation, um, a little bit of supplementation. They were just never, you know, they weren't good nurses, so they were just, they were still always a little hungry, whiny, so I'd nurse, he'd formula feed, and then I tried to get maybe 40 minutes of sleep. Uh, and do it all over started. again. <laughs> right. But to their credit, they, they, within three or four months, were sleeping through the night, and yeah. um, they were incredible sleepers, 10, 12 hours a night, I mean, just effortless. Especially, I can especially say compared to my son, who's still almost two years, does not sleep through the night and still nurses at night. So um, right. we really, really, really hit the hit the jackpot with that. So um, the second time around, you guys had a singleton and or one baby, and right. you. That's what twin moms call parents with one baby at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so you. I remember you thinking that this was a much easier experience in your, in your, like you wanted a VBAC. Remember you had a trial of labor and you didn't dilate and you got your right. VPC section and he was how many pounds? <laughs> he was 10 pounds. Oh my gosh. Is it 10, 10. It was, he was 10 pounds, 10 ounces. Yeah. Went into labor on his due date. <laughs> at 40 weeks and we thought he would be you know nine pounds probably but yeah 10 10 so I did we did have the trial labor um I think I was in labor like 18 hours and you know but we'd already decided you know 12 hours in that it was probably going to be best um because I was not dilating at all it was going to be best to go ahead and schedule the c-section and um, because no good happens after 40 weeks. I think that was a direct quote for me. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. so now you have these three babies and you're, you worked some part-time, you switched up your job a little bit because you were trying to right. really figure out this mom life balance that is so incredibly hard. Not to mention when you've right. got three little ones. <laughs> right. Well, let's step back just real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
Yes, so Sebastian, my little guy, almost two now, uh, the experience with him, even having a C-section, I had a hard recovery the first time, but that, and that was why I was really wanting to try for a VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean, because I had such a difficult time recovering with my first. But um, even though he was 10 pounds, 10 ounces, like I was so relieved when I heard his birth weight. I was like, I'm so glad it worked out this way. I just escaped a 10 pound, <laughs> 10 ounce boulder, right? right. Um, <laughs> but from everything, the hospital stay, the cesarean recovery, um, nursing, I mean, he just, I think because I put in all that work, he just watched right on and I knew it was a good latch and I just, we were just so at peace, snuggled up together in the room the whole time. And so I, I think there were a lot of things I regretted or not, not necessarily regretted, but you know what I mean? I looked back on and I'd wish that it had gone a different way or that I'd had more of those precious early moments with the girls. And so with Sebastian, having that experience was a bit of uh, a bit redeeming, I guess. I, it was yeah. healing, I guess is the right way to say it. It was healing for me. Right. Um, so, yeah. And he's just, aside from his sleeping habits, <laughs> he's been the easiest baby. And um, I just, I, I, was, I, I was more of an attachment style parent with him, um, you know, wearing him, baby wearing and all of that and holding him close, um, mostly out of like practicality because I'm chasing around the girls. And sure. um, okay, so just I wanted to speak to that piece. But yes, I had chosen to, I chose to go back to work um, after I think 10 weeks uh, with the girls and AJ stayed home. Um, and then built his own practice once, you know, the girls could, they were, I think about six months in. But we were at a very different stage, you know, with the girls um, being three years old, we had moved, AJ was in a different role. And so I had, we had made the decision that I was going to stay home with Sebastian and the girls. Um, so I was going to keep them all three home for maybe 12 months. That was kind of the goal. I ended up doing so for six months before I sent uh, the girls back to school and I started back to work um, in a consulting role. Right. So you found a little more balance for you so that you could feel, I don't know, um, what's the right word for it so that you could feel uh, yourself again, right? Because you get consumed and wiping hineys and Fixing and yeah. snacks and all the things. Yeah, I don't know that I ever found balance being a stay-at-home mom. You know, like kudos to all the stay-at-home moms who are able to thrive in that or, you know, make it work for their family. It was very hard with three at home. Um, and at the, in the mental state that I was, I was at at that point, um, I think, I needed maybe some additional counseling and support and that would have maybe made it work better. It helped me to take better care of myself. Um, but it, at a certain point it just didn't work, but no regrets because, you know, I wanted to leave that job um, and not have anything pulling me back 
I wanted to just feel it out, just be able to be there, to not have anything tugging me back or have a deadline or anything like that. I just wanted to feel it out and see what's right, when's the right time. Um, and I'm glad we did that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk just briefly about the comments that people make when they're trying to be helpful, but it provokes all of the emotions. <laughs> your advice and your big takeaway. It does. It, it, it can be very triggering for someone going through infertility. I don't know if I have any big advice or um, nuggets of wisdom. I just um, I, I think the best thing you can do as someone who loves or supports, maybe it's a coworker or someone you don't know and you don't have firsthand experience with infertility, um, I think the best thing you can do is just say, wow, that must be really tough. Like, tell me more about that or, or how can I support you, right? Just holding um, space rather, for them. Yeah, rather than, you know, you know, everyone means well, I think, um, but there's a lot of harmful things that are, that are said, like, um, I'm trying to think of the most obnoxious things, <laughs> but, um, you know, it'll happen, you know, everything happens for a reason, or, you know, it'll, just relax. Just relax. Oh, just relax. Oh, well, my friend, like, they adopted and then they got pregnant. And maybe, or, you know, maybe you're just too work, you're too too anxious about it or too worked up about it. And I don't know. That's, you know, all of the anecdotes. Um, I don't know. I didn't find them very helpful. But I did always try to remember, even though, um, you know, some of, the way that I process people's comments could be hurtful. Um, I always try to come back to remember that they mean well, they don't mean any harm, don't take it personally, right? Something as simple as when are you guys planning to start a family or when are you gonna have kids? Something as simple as that could send you over the edge at the, on a given day. Oh yeah, actually yes. Like, and it's just nor it's natural that people are just trying to make small talk, um, trying to get to know you. They want to know if you have kids. Well, how long have you been married? Like, well, when are you going to get on that? Or, you know, family members, parents, I don't know. I don't even remember it. I don't think our parents, my, my parents necessarily were like that, but um, I know a lot of people's parents or grandparents or, you know, well-meaning family members will push and add pressure to, um, to that. Yeah. But yeah, and for me, I just sort of then open the door to additional comments rather than just changing the subject. Uh, I was open and transparent about it. I was like, well, you know, after a certain point, I was like, well, I mean, I really would like to, but, you know, um, you know, we've had a really hard time conceiving. And so I would just be very honest about it. And then people would make, some people would just get uncomfortable and others would give me all of the anecdotes and advice. Sure. I don't know. It's, yeah. It was hard at the time. For sure. Sure. So what I hear you saying for people who are 
um, learning of somebody else going through infertility, to be sensitive to that and to just hold space for them, just to be with them, just to allow them to experience what they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how true this is, but I had read some statistic that, you know, a couple going through infertility, which is one in eight, right? I think statistics, one in eight couples will struggle with infertility or struggles to conceive um, beyond that first year. And, you know, I've heard that it can be as stressful as uh, a cancer battle. Of course, a cancer battle is life-threatening, and so I don't mean to compare. (laughs) The stress that you're... Yeah, just understand that the emotional toll is probably beyond your understanding. And so I guess just, just asking questions or showing support rather than making comments. Okay. All right. So move. uh, I want to make sure that we address the fact that you finished your MBA when you had three kids who were four and under. Um, You really amazed me in this working, taking uh, your courses and somehow getting it all done And now you guys in the middle of COVID are working from home and parenting these three kiddos. And it has been up and down as I'm sure it has been for all the families and who are dealing with all the challenges during this time. Um, But I just want to address briefly how you found yourself realizing that maybe I could be functioning at a different level, that this anxiety that I've had underlying for a long time isn't serving me anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I decided to go back to school and do my MBA um, when my twins were about to be two years old. And, you know, I think my first class was during the Hurricane Harvey evacuation. (laughs) We were evacuated. I'm like, it's like, do you really want to do this? Is this really the right time to get an MBA? And so anyway, I found the experience, although I would not recommend it to anyone else um, necessarily. I found it a good opportunity to um, pour into myself a little Yes. in my nerdy way of doing so, but just repurposing some of that wasted time uh decompressing after I get the kids in bed to rather than being on social media to um you know studying taking some classes and so I kept I kept at it but at a slower pace so I wouldn't recommend it necessarily but um it's behind me and I finished right in the nick of time right before I finished my coursework right before spring break of this year so that couldn't have been better timing um, which I didn't realize that my kids wouldn't go back to school after spring break until October. <laughs> but right. that's what happened because as we know, yeah. 2020 and COVID hit us here in the States and Texas around that time. And so all three, well, all three kids stayed home for a couple of months and we we're trying to work and juggle everything and 
it was, um, I think AJ came home working exclusively from home in April. It's been a total whirlwind. Um, right. But thankfully, uh, we felt comfortable sending the kids back to school in October, and uh, we're finding a lot better balance. But uh, a couple weeks into the quarantine, I, you know, I'm trying to work, I have all three kids, and I'm really finding myself having a hard time coping with the, uh, the new normal. Right. <laughs> Specifically coping with, like, balancing the, all the distractions and controlling, like, uh, controlling my emotions. Right. Um, quite frankly. And... Uh, so, you know, so I, you know, I got on, hopped on MG Live, and I found a counselor, and started talking with the counselor, and that was really helpful every week, um, you know, she'd sort of listen to me and give me a little pointer, some little coping mechanisms, not coping mechanisms I could try, and, um, you know, that was really effective, but then at a certain point, that sort of fizzled out, and I just, came to a realization that I needed, I think she recommended seeing, talking with a psychiatrist. And um, it's kind of a hard time when you're not like necessarily going to be an inpatient psychiatric patient, which I wasn't at that point, um, by the grace of God. <laughs> right? You were holding on yeah. to your sanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although there's no shame in needing that kind of support. Um, at all, but yeah, I was, I was holding on by thread, and, um, I was able, I was saying it's a little, it was a little hard to find someone, um, because a lot of, um, you know, there's restrictions on what you can prescribe or how you can treat, um, psychiatric through telehealth, but it is possible. It is available through a lot of telehealth providers and, um, um, and then a lot of, you know, a lot of people aren't, they don't have their offices open for in-person visits, right? Some do, right. a lot of, a lot do, but many don't. So it, it's just another barrier along with the fact that a lot more people, children, adults alike have entered counseling this year. Um, I think it's a positive thing <laughs> for us right. as a society. Right. Um, and that's what I found is that this new challenge, this new, you know, trial that we've been through with all of these changes this year it has amplified it has exposed some of those underlying things that you know they've been affecting I think my like I would say my relationship with my children with my husband with just my relationship with myself like my self-image yes and they I have been getting by and distracting myself long enough Thankfully, with healthy coping mechanisms, like I don't drink, <laughs> you know, right. those types of things, um, or do drugs, or extra things. So, right. you know, fortunately, um, you know, I've been, I've, I just became very irritable. But even from a physical level, I got to a point where I was, you know, like sweating profusely. And <laughs> um, I couldn't find a deodorant that would work. Um, right. And I think that was another sign that you need some help, honey. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Medication. Um, and so for me, 
I'm very analytical. I'm very, I think, very cautious when it comes to that. I'm avoided. I avoid taking medications that are unnecessary, right? Sure. And so I went the route of finding like a doctor of psychi- a doctor of psychology who was. That's what she does. Is she does those sort of evaluations, the assessments, and um, in order to um, sort of prove or diagnose, you know, to diagnose, but right. um, in a very methodical way that's very comprehensive. So for me, I had to get a better understanding of what was going on um, before I would sort of consent to um, taking a medication for that. But that has been the best, that's been the best thing for right. me. And such a relief, um, um, it just an instant, an instant relief and ability to be present in my own skin and to mm. to and to savor and have joy and peace in those moments. I mean, our children, God bless them, they they give us so many. Um, opportunities to be frustrated <laughs> you know lack of sleep chaos mess right constant right. uh constant needing us and pulling us which can be stressful but um they also fill our lives with so much joy but when you have um anxiety generalized anxiety as i do um you know there's it, it even though you might smile and laugh like there's always this underlying sense of fear of worry that um when's the other shoe gonna drop right when's someone mm. gonna get hurt or when am i gonna lose something or someone or you know right. right um and that's not a way that's not a very very good way to live <laughs> right um, and i and and it's one of those things that i probably have experienced my whole life that built up gradually and amplified as we approach, you know, the thick of COVID, quarantine, you know, all of these changes. And um, all the little kids. <laughs> all the little kids. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so that's my story. And that's where I'm at right now is um, on the other side of that, um, finding, having found a medication that works to help control anxiety and mm. help me to see what's possible yeah. um, and sort of prevent some of those barriers to just enjoying the day-to-day moments and being more in, in control of my emotions and not being as reactive because of the anxiety, um, which was conflicting, uh, you know, because I, I feel like I'm a, like, you know, very, you know, I, I have a lot of love and, um, appreciation for my children and my family, but is like constantly getting, uh, you know, losing my temper or yelling or those types of things. And as we were working through this, um, you know, my therapist was like, well, that's, that's the anxiety, right? It's like just by their way of existing, they're triggering the anxiety, right? right? Because right. they're worrying and then all the interruptions, right? And that's just, it's a reactiveness, right? Right. So if we can get that under control, right? Then you can respond in a way that, you know, that you intend, that's yeah. true to yourself. 
So I found right. that to be the case. So it's, it's alleviated a lot of the tension between the children and I and AJ, my husband and I, and um, which with during this time of being home together um, without, I mean, we, the kids go to school, right? We occasionally will escape for an outdoor outing, but we're very, being very cautious with COVID. Um, that's been such a gift. It's been such a gift for us to be able to actually, in, for me, I guess, to be able to really actually enjoy, um, enjoy this time more. Right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story as a infertility warrior. <laughs> and even though people look at you now and say, oh, she's got such a sweet family and look at all those kids, you're always going to be an infertility warrior. <laughs> and shedding life on um, mental health. It's just so important um, that both of these are just um, amplified and not swept under the rug. So um, I love you, sister, and I'm so happy for you to share your story with the Sky community. Um, in closing, I wanna ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. I wanna know what is that one thing that keeps you centered? Right now, Lexapro. God bless Lexapro. Okay. <laughs> What's on your nightstand? Because I know that you are a self-help junkie, much like myself, and we're constantly reading things. And I know you had re read uh, Nonviolent Communication recently. What, what's on your nightstand or on your Audible app? Because let's be honest, moms with small kids don't have time to read. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> Since I'm sitting in my closet for better sound quality, my nightstands are stacked in my closet because my kids <laughs> drag them around my room. <laughs> Just part of the chaos of having little kids. So I don't have nightstands. <laughs> they push them around on the wood floor? Yes. <laughs> it's maddening. It is not to the faint of heart having three kids five and under. So I said, okay, that's so frustrating. I'm just going to tuck them in the closet for maybe a year, and then we'll try to put them back out. So uh, my, my, my nightstands tend to be a junk, turn into junk drawers. <laughs> so it's probably for the best. Yeah, I, I love that you're just brutally honest because every mother, every mother on earth is going, yes, girl, like me too. <laughs> I don't want anyone to get, have the illusion that, yeah, I post pretty cute pictures of the kids on Instagram from time to time, but I don't want anyone to have the illusion that I have my stuff too together because it's just so far Not from true. <laughs> I've read a ton of Audible books this, this year. Um, you know, Untamed has been probably the biggest, uh, Alicia Keys' most recent book. Yes. Um, yeah. And nonviolent communication was, was, was very, uh, was very good. It was very enlightening. All right. Some excellent book choices from the mouth of Sarah Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I think you're fabulous and I think the community will enjoy your story and relate you're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs>